This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. There is no longer any debate, scientific, anecdotal, or otherwise. Climate change is here, and it is already radically changing humans' relationships to the planet. What to do next when most governments move glacially in response to the wildfire speed of global climate disaster is the question that sits with us as our feet dangle over the precipice of what is to come. Art seems poised to fill the gap left by do-nothing governments. But as Amitav Ghosh writes of the necessity for new kinds of climate fiction in The Great Derangement, To make climate change the setting of a novel is to, quote, court eviction from the mansion in which serious fiction has long been in residence. Where then do we look for narratives that ask of us terrible and existential questions about the future of humans, while goading us to action and change? The past decade has seen enormous growth in the loosely defined genre of cli-fi, or climate fiction. And while many of those contributions are dystopian, a new breed of novel offers different, more hopeful visions of a possible future. I was lucky enough to read an amazing new entry into this field of literature, Allegra Hyde's Eleutheria. I am so pleased to now present our interview. I think you'll find yourself a new devotee of her work, and I'll wager that you too will soon be thinking of the novel as a kind of terrarium, awaiting our tending. I hope you enjoy the show. And now, Allegra Hyde. Welcome back to Burn by Books. 
When Willa Marks, the daughter of survivalists, decides to abandon her life in Boston to seek out a remote eco-utopian colony in the Bahamas, she has seen enough of the torn through world to know that a new radical kind of community is the last best hope. Eleutheria, Allegra Hyde's beautifully crafted and thrillingly paced story of Willa's transformation from a naive young woman desperate to be seen as meaningful to the world, to the leader of a social movement that might hold the keys to existence beyond the great climate collapse, is a testament to art's power to challenge our assumptions. Willa Marks proves herself always more than the sum of her experiences, and her bravery and uncompromising belief that there is a better and more meaningful way to live in the world is inspiring, even when she falters. Allegra's debut novel places us in a distorted present teetering on the edge of planetary failure that is disconcertingly familiar. Democracies fall, oceans rise, and Willa looks desperately for a figure of in loco parentis for the planet. She initially falls in with a Harvard professor, Sylvia Gill, who becomes both her lover and a conduit to understanding how social movements, micro and macro, prepare for revolution. But when Sylvia's motives are proven corruptible, Willa sets out for a place and community at the edge of her understanding of a possible future. At Camp Hope, she will join a cadre of young people drawn to revolution by a charismatic and enigmatic former military leader, Roy Adams, whose pamphlet, Living the Solution, appears to contain the formula for a world teetering at the bleeding edge of failure. One cannot help but be captivated by Allegra's lyrical prose and empathetic voicing of Willa's life at the margins. This is a gift of a novel at a time in which we need art that pushes us to act, to believe in the radical possibility of change. Allegra is also the author of of This New World, a collection of stories that was the winner of the John Simmons Short Fiction Award, and she teaches at Oberlin College. Welcome to the show, Allegra Hyde. Thank you so much, Chris, and thank you for that incredible introduction. I'm very happy you're here. I want to talk a little bit about the context of Eleutheria, which places us in, as I said, a slightly distorted version of our present. There is a Trump-like figure exerting emergency powers to punish the out-of-line blue states and cities. There are real historical events that are exaggerated to push the country and the world toward crisis. How did you decide on a mostly real historical context that would include these cascading differences? Well, I was always interested in writing a slightly distorted reality, um, a kind of funhouse mirror of real and not real, um, because I think that exaggeration, distortion can make reality more visible and at times more palatable. Um, I think exaggeration, distortion allow us to look at the crises of our modern age, um, maybe a little sideways, mm -hmm. because these crises are so extreme and so severe and so bad that it's it's hard they're hard to look at they're hard to digest they're hard to hold in our in our bodies but if they're written about in a way that's slightly skewed slightly off 
I think the story is easier to sink into and to accept. So on a craft level, exaggeration made sense to me um, for especially for engaging with um, the climate crisis. I also exaggeration distortion um, to me was just embedded in the name of the place and in the ultimately the name of the book, Eleutheria. Um, there's a, a a real island named Eleuthera that could have been called Eleutheria had that uh, original name um, from a group of Puritan settlers not been um, slightly shortened. So mm. uh, in a sense, the name Eleutheria is both a kind of a real name and a alternative for that island. Um, and I think that kind of embodies what I was trying to capture in the novel overall. That's fascinating. How did you come upon the history of Eleuthera? Well, I I first visited the island of Eleuthera, uh, I think around uh, 2009, doing a, a research trip and was really captivated by the um, the place, the landscape, the history, the culture, and as someone who's interested in patterns, ultimately, I was really fascinated by the pattern of idealism and exploitation that had played out in this particular place um, over centuries, and how that um, cycle of idealism and exploitation echoed a larger um, story of the Americas. Uh, and I ultimately was was drawn back to this island and and couldn't get it out of my head for um, decades, and that ultimately led me to this uh, novel. That's fascinating. I, I want to talk for a second about the temporality of of the novel's plotting itself. You use something of a kind of accordion temporality, and it moves us backwards and forwards in time, giving us Willa's development in New Hampshire and then Boston in between sections at Camp Hope in the Bahamas. You then add in chapters from the guidebook for living in an eco-utopian community, living the solution. What was attractive to you about this kind of temporal structure? The structure made sense to me for a character, uh, for telling the story of a character who takes an extreme action. Willa decides to leave her life behind, go to the go to the Bahamas, join this fringe group that may or may not exist that has. Uh, huge goals and huge plans. And I think that temp temporality ultimately emerged organically as I was exploring her time with this intentional community and her reasons behind going there. So in that sense, the, the structure unfolded organically. Um, I think I think for characters in situations that are extreme, maybe we need to uh, it just make, can make sense to spend more time unpacking the the why of how we got there. And that allows that extremity to um, sit more believably in a story and to uh, maybe allows us as readers to also empathize at times. Hmm. And I thought, I guess I would say that I thought the accordion structure it was a, a structure that was able to accommodate something like the fragments of Living the Solution or um, Sylvia's Letter or mm -hmm. moments of digression at times as well, where 
um, I'm, I'm digging into the cousin's life, uh, Willa's cousin's life. Um, so it, it held, it was able to hold everything I wanted to say. Yeah. It feels very natural. I could imagine a different structure. It feeling kind of like lumpy to have living the solution, um, you know, the text emerging from it, but it doesn't, it, it feels quite natural to what you've designed. So I think it's, it's quite a successful temporality. Thank you. Um, Willa Marks begins her life as the child of survivalists, spending lots of time in their in their bunker, and they are her parents are bent on having a closed community that's preparing for the end of times. Camp Hope, by contrast, offers a future facing alternative and a community that will grow by design, by the nature of its self-sufficiency. And yet these powerful communities share a great deal in common. Did you want them to have echoes of each other, even as they seem to be so diametrically opposed? Yeah, absolutely. To me, Camp Hope's utopian futurism and the uh, survivalism and doomsday prepping of Willa's parents are really two sides of the same coin. They're mm. both about escaping the present. They're both about evading um, certain challenges of the present in a sense. They both necessitate the exclusion of others. Uh, they involve a kind of stench of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And I think undergirding all of that is a Puritan mentality. Um, this uh, sense of an escape from an old world, a new world, destruction in paradise, and one of the reasons why I had that thread of historical interludes running through the novel, talking about colonial trajectory of the Bahamas, was to show how both New England and the Bahamas are connected by these um, Puritan settlements, Puritan endeavors, and shaped by them. And of course, American society is still so shaped and influenced by so many Puritan norms and values. And it was interesting to me to have them be expressed in these two vastly different communities and in different ways. Yeah, I think we don't think of uh, the the Caribbean as as having the Puritan influence, and yet I think as you draw them together in that history, it makes so much sense. When you said the stench of perfectionism, <laughs> which I which I love, all I could think of was the incredible exercise routine that that Willa is introduced to when she gets to Camp Hope, and mm. thinking about the stench of their sweat as they're forced to perfect their bodies to prepare for whatever it is they'll they'll have to endure but i uh, i now see that as such a, a puritan ideal yeah absolutely it's once you start looking for it it's really everywhere sadly <laughs> would, that, would that it were otherwise but i will be using the stench of perfectionism <laughs> in common parlance all the time now um your novel at its root is an exploration of the attractions and dangers of these kinds of utopian communities, especially in a time of near ecological disaster. Why did you want to dramatize such communities in the novel form? And why did you want to focus on such imperfect social movements? Well, I've always been obsessed with utopian communities, full full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I've been drawn to the way they crop up um, to particular historical moments and societal challenges. I admire in many ways the courage and bravery that it takes to step away from the mainstream and try something different, try something new, um, and the, the active problem solving that they often involve say the transcendentalist compounds of the 19th century trying to address gender equality or labor issues or even animal rights or the the back to the landers in the 60s and 70s in america um all there's admirable things about all of them but they do all inevitably come up against human fallibility the limitations of human human flaws are inevitably expressed. And so I wanted to show an eco-utopia where people are are trying to actively problem solve the climate crisis because I think it felt important to me to show problem solving on the page and to show wrestling with this, this huge crisis. This interested me because when it comes to social movements that are pursuing big ideas and big goals, um, I think they're that in order to accomplish those goals, maybe we have to be more aware or increasingly aware of our own limits as well. And I wonder if um, the most effective social movements are going to be ones that strive to to push forward um, in a progressive way, humility, that find that balance mm-hmm. of optimism and pragmatism. Yeah, I'm I, I'm interested in this idea because it does seem like that the the Achilles heel uh, of of hubris and and not understanding the limitations of humans is what is the downfall of the, of many of these movements, and yet I can't imagine them starting without them. Um, you know, Roy Adams, the, the cultish leader of Camp Hope, is you know the the raison d'être for kind of drawing these people um, to this utopian community, and he is like the the antithesis of understanding limits and understanding the flaws of hubris. And so I wonder if there's, is there even a way to have these kind of communities and have them be modest, have them be aware of, of that fallibility? Are there, are there ones that you're thinking of that actually exist? Or is this a, is this more of a hopeful thing that perhaps uh, art can, can help us to start to fixate on? I think that there are communities out there that are able to, that have been able to persist over decades in part because they're able to evolve alongside evolving cultures and societies that they're next to and in some ways in some ways always going to be reacting to or relating to i'm thinking of twin oaks uh, is a, a, a commune that's lasted a really long time and they've i think figured out a system for problem solving for incorporating new members for growing and changing while also maintaining their core values um, so in terms of intentional communities I think I think they're definitely out there and I and I also think that there's there's forms of leaders out there who are who are not who are not Roy Adamses who are not ultimately corrupt hubris I I think about someone like 
Greta um, Thunberg, mm. who is such a, a such an incredible um, climate activist, and who I think brings does bring a, a kind of degree of of humility and self sacrifice to promoting the agenda that she's promoting. Yes, she's. I, I mean, there is something that seems so sine qua non of about her that she has an an ability to uh both be this like real flame to draw people together around this issue while not kind of burning everything down being having yeah. a, having a modesty absolutely can we talk a second about terrariums? Um, in, in the novel, Willa makes these wonderful terrariums in her parents' survival bunker. And you write beautifully that, quote, once sealed, the terrarium becomes a universe belonging only to itself. The taut plastic trapped moisture cycled condensation in miniature monsoons. The same ingredients in different quantities produced wildly different results. A basic principle, but one that allowed me as a young girl to imagine my reality was, was one among many. There existed other versions of me. First of all, it's a very beautiful moment in the, in the novel and wonderfully written. But there's a lot captured in this description of the mini ecosystem that fascinates Willa a biome protected from outside incursion, a metaphor for Camp Hope and a utopian eco-community, and a meta-metaphor for Willa herself trying to structure who she might become. What drew you to terrariums as a meaningful site for literary thinking? Thank you. I really appreciate your support of terrariums. <laughs> I, Not to get even more meta, but one of the qualities of a terrarium that I find useful for literary thinking in general is to think of the novel itself as a kind of terrarium because mm, I love that. to me, yeah, the novel has to be this self-contained entity that can stand on its own, that can, can stay in motion on its own. So when it comes to writing, I try to bring some terrarium energy to how I'm constructing plot and character and setting and how I'm setting everything in motion and then um, letting it go. When it comes to the novel itself, when it came to Eleutheria, I, I found the terrarium to be a really useful touchstone for distilling the reality of living on this planet, which is um, the fact that we may be made of kind of disparate parts, just as, uh, I guess, just as a terrarium might contain moss and a twig and a, a little sapling um, on our, on this planet, you know, we've got lakes, we have people, we have bears, we have moose, um, but we're, we're ultimately one unit that is functioning as, um, as a, as a single thing. We all evolved together and, to, I think to to keep that in mind and and remember that that unity that we're we're a clo we're a closed system in a way, and we all rely on one another. We impact one another. That felt really important to my just understanding of the world and to what I was hoping would echo outward into the novel, which does contain kind of other closed communities within this larger planet um, but at the end of the day that's the that's the big terrarium that we're living in 
Mm. And I love the idea of the novel as a terrarium. I think that works beautifully and being able to set forth some some structures some some living things within it but then allow it to to grow and develop as it will um i think that's a wonderful metaphor am i writing think in thinking that these aren't just metaphors for you and that you are invested in making terrariums and that <laughs> maybe you have a guidebook that you've authored to making terrariums so this is where Willa's life and my life converge in a significant way because we are we are both terrarium enthusiasts. We both <laughs> did spend uh, a fair amount of time in New Hampshire making terrariums out of things we found in the woods. And I continue to make them sometimes and have them around my house. They're the most low maintenance, I would say, kind of houseplant type thing you can have and they're i think they're fun to make so i'm i i am always excited to spread terrarium enthusiasm and i did make a little guidebook um in tandem with publishing this novel certainly can send you on chris and for oh, great. any listeners who are interested in finding one i believe there's going to be a digital version with the reading guide for this novel so uh, you you too can have a, <laughs> a a guide to making terrariums. Did you illustrate it as well? I did illustrate it. Yeah, it was it was a great um, respite from from writing to work in a visual way. I've seen the the cover and it has a beautiful illustration. And I'd wondered if you had done both. Well, that's exciting. I'm I'm very much looking forward to a terrarium guide of my own. <laughs> Um, one of my, you talked before about how the temporality allows you these digressions. And one of my favorite digressions in the novel is the time that Willa spends with her cousins, Victoria and Jeanette, who are these uber privileged twee sort of almost twins who are unnaturally interdependent on each other and on their social media posting. They are a sorrowful, if hilarious picture of distracted privilege. Why were they important for Willa's story? I think for the novel, the cousins represent another avenue for coping with reality, um, which is to say they they avoid reality by creating this kind of falsified internet-based existence. And it's a it's another kind of utopianism. It's another um it's a kind of perfect curated digital version of themselves that they're that they're living vicariously through and that's a a real coping mechanism um that's out there which i completely understand and it's one that willa uses for a time to cope with her grief and it also for willa ultimately informs her understanding of image and and perfection which comes to inform camp hope and what camp hope is and how it's supposed to work um and so in that way the the cousins ref refract through the the themes of the novel and also have this sort of sideways influence on on camp hope which is of course a, a big part of the book 
Yeah, they. I, I mean, they're very funny. They're, you know, they're. It's a little bit sad because their their <laughs> their form of distraction from from the world or um, choosing uh, a, a different kind of self comforting is one that's all too available to us. I imagine to you as as well as to me who teach college and see mm-hmm. um, young people who are so absorbed in in the the not real communities of of social media to the loss of uh external communities but they you know they are a a really important i think foil to the choices about the kinds of communities that we that we select and the kinds of self comforting that we do either by external action visible tangible action or by a kind of retreating yeah i i fear the escape into a digital realm as well i found facebook's rolling out of the metaverse really sinister Mm -hmm. Um, but i also don't want to pretend like i'm i'm above it either because i i feel the the pull of that digital world i I get caught up in it as well. It's it's really powerful, especially the worst things get in our 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 actual reality. Um, two of my favorite all time guests on the show made very strong pronouncements about the future of climate fiction. Ruman Alam said that all fiction is now climate fiction, even if that's not the intended focus. And Alexander Kleeman layered on to that idea that we need new kinds of climate fiction, a new genre more powerfully positioned in our cultural imagination. Where do you fall in this discussion of our literary future? Well, first off, I should say that I am a a huge fan of them both. And it's exciting just to be on a podcast that they have also been on. Um, And I I think they will both be fans (laughs) of this novel. if They haven't already reviewed it and, and talked about it. I have no doubt it will be in their wheelhouse. Um, that's, That's very exciting. Well, I'm of the belief that all fiction is part of a larger story we're telling ourselves about climate change and that this larger story informs how we think and act in the real world as individuals and as a society. This might sound um, reductive, it is reductive, but to, to make a broad generalization, a novel that makes, a contemporary novel that makes no mention of climate change could be said to contribute to a denialist business as usual mentality um, out in the real world. And a contemporary novel that emphasizes only apocalyptic doom and gloom could contribute to an overall sense of nihilism as a sense that there's nothing we can do. And again, I know that's reductive, um, but what ultimately I hope to accomplish in this book was a depiction of efforts to problem solve, even if those efforts were flawed, because I want problem solving um, and a sense of agency to be part of the story we're telling ourselves about Um. climate change. And I wanted to put... Also, I would say I wanted to put the future in conversation with the past because to me, to reckon with the future, to face the future really necessitates reckoning with the past, with um, for oppressive forces from the past, colonialism, white supremacy, um, extractivist 
um, mentalities, because I, I do think that the problem solving that we need necessitates an engagement with those forces. And do you, um, so one of the things I found really interesting is even though living the solution, the, the pamphlet or book that's, that's designed, written by Roy Adams is, is shown to be deeply, deeply flawed. Um, do you feel that there's something of that kind of like productive optimism in terms of being able to lay out a roadmap that that we're looking for some sort of roadmap and i know that the um that the writer kim stanley robinson's most recent attempt at climate sci-fi is has been talked about in that way as as providing a roadmap for building community even in a time of disaster do you think that might be something that's needed in the future of this genre or if that genre is all writing then um in the work that happens in fiction i do think that moving i do think that moving towards the future in a way that where we're we're actively trying to address this crisis does need a sense of possibility and that artists and writers have the capability to paint different pictures of what we could do, how we could do it, how it would play out. I, I think not knowing where we're going and how we're gonna get there is is really difficult. So I, I find um, a work like Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future really important because I think he's, he's doing that active work of depicting possible avenues for how we handle this crisis. And maybe it's, maybe it's not quite the right avenue, maybe it's not the one we ultimately follow, but just, just trying um, to, to figure it out, I think is, is so important and so necessary. For me, one of the great tragedies of how governance in the United States seems to be purposefully preventative of having something like a roadmap is our failure to want to look at the future even um, or, or because it can be seen as apocalyptic or at right. least or at least dour and i think of sweden for example that has a minister a specific person within the government whose only job is to think about the future and to think about how in particular you know those just being born and the young people of the country will encounter a very different world and so for example coming up with menus that people mm -hmm. can start to try now of the foods that may be the only sustainable ones available in the future and we just seem to have none of that, none of that kind of thinking, either canonized within the government or even kind of loosely and informally among those who we see, seem to want to govern us. I wonder if you've thought the same thing or have any uh, insight into why that is. Absolutely. It's something I think about a lot, especially with um, our government and how it works, because I think the vast majority of government representatives represent generations that are not going to bear the the brunt of climate change and one idea that i 
wanted to wedge into the novel was this idea of an alternative political system called generational representative democracy, where rather than having representatives based on geography, we have representatives based on generation. And in that sense, the interests of the future would be looked out for, and um, as well as the interests of of the past. And I know that this is, is speculative and it might seem really out there to some some folks, but imagine if there were government representatives for ancestors who were paying attention to ancestral mm. lands, burial grounds. Imagine if there was a representative speaking on behalf of, um, you know, children who have have yet to be born who uh, and and that representative is making sure that they're going to have access to clean air, clean water. I think that would radically shape how we live in the present. Absolutely. I mean, I love that idea. I'd never thought of a kind of like ancestor pre-generations thinking about how those lands that were important to the lives of others might be preserved. But I, I think these are this kind of generational thinking beyond just having, you know, 70 two-year-old white guys be mm -hmm. in charge of um, what the future is when their future is, you know, maybe 10 years if they're, if they go to the Senate gym enough. Um, but yeah, I, I, I long for, for others who can think in these terms. Um, and unfortunately I don't see them um, in the near future, but uh, maybe I'm always hopeful that art and artists is, are capable of pushing pushing the narrative for how we think about governing ourselves. The one thing about Camp Hope and Living the Solution for all of its um, uh, put, uh, problematic aspects, um, for all the things that uh, could be questioned and criticized about it, putting forward the idea that the future has the potential to be better, um, that it has the, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, a future of of ultimate sacrifice and pain and suffering that a climate change, a sustainable future could potentially be more equitable, more just, more beautiful, I think is um, an idea that it, I still want to believe and want to move towards. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, one of the interesting kind of mini social movements of of the many that are within this novel is Freeganism, which is a real movement in the U.S. and I would assume globally, although I don't know. Um, and it's a catalyst to Willa's radicalization. Are the Freegans the only ones living the solution in your novel? I think that all the characters in in the book are living a solution of some kind. Um, they're all coping with their realities and solving it to the best of their ability. Um, and the Freegans, the Freegans also are, are living a solution. And I think that their um, radical approach to, to food waste, to food sovereign, sovereignty is important and the time that I've spent with Freegan activists was really impactful to me. And oh, were you were you doing research on this uh, intentional community? 
Yeah, I have. Um, I have been immersed uh, among among freegan activists and uh, dumpster dived, cook freegan meals to get with them. Um, uh, participated in a, a free freegan flea market. Um, so, and I would also say that it is a uh, an international movement. It, but I think like Sylvia, at times I also wondered about the limits of their approach. How far could it go? Mm. Was it the was it ultimately the the right solution? Um, are solutions do solutions need to be varied at the end of the day? And um, I I don't I don't have an answer, or I guess my answer is ultimately what happens at the end of the book, where we there is a a depiction of a ground swell effort to radically transform society to um, build international coalitions to combat climate change and as an author that's ultimately my best guess for guess for what a solution could look like so do you have some climate fiction in mind that you think is is doing good work that is both kind of operating as um, art that we can appreciate aesthetically and um, with the sort of joy of encountering novels and stories, but is also doing doing work to push forward the ideas that are at the root of Eleutheria. Is there anything on your mind? Well, I loved Alexandra Kleeman's Something New Under the Sun, which I know you're a fan of as well. Mm-hmm. And I just found it such a useful way to understand ecology in our contemporary times, um, as well as a way to really reckon with corporate tyranny, we could say. Mm-hmm. Um, Lydia Millet's A Children's Bible I think it's such an original and compelling way to explore catastrophe. I love the the voice in that novel. I found so gripping. Um, then there's Matt Bell's Appleseed, which... I've been meaning to read this. It's It looks amazing. Yeah, I think um, Matt and I were both influenced by Amitav Ghosh's The Great Derangement and the um, uh, critiques uh, Ghosh puts forward about how literature ha- hasn't been able to fully grapple with climate change. And I think Matt's book, like my book, is interested in connecting the future with the past, with um, thinking on a, a large time scale. And I think it's um, really inventive and, and really worth a read. Those sound great. Uh, do you have any other uh, things you'd like to re- uh, recommend to us? Sure. I have I have two nonfiction books that I want to share. One is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andrea's mom. And I know that that is a, a kind of startling title and a startling book. It sure premise. is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a really important book about ethics at the end of the day. And um, it's, uh, it's really worth engaging with seriously even if you're even if the title makes you really uncomfortable 
And the second book I recommend all the time is called The End of Protest. And it's by Micah White, who was one of the founders of the Wall Occupy Wall Street movement. And to me, it's it's such an illuminating book on social movements, on why social movements and activism need to evolve in order to um, address the the problems of today. And I also just found it really inspiring. Well, these are wonderful. And I will make sure that we have links to them on the website at burnedbybooks.com. And Allegra, thank you so much for a wonderful interview. And I'm, I'm thrilled that I got to be introduced to your work through Eleutheria. Thank you so much, Chris. This was really wonderful. Well, that's all from me for now. My enormous thanks to Allegra Hyde. You'll find links to purchase her novel, Eleutheria, and all of her recommended books at burnbybooks.com, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes and book recommendation lists. I hope you'll take a moment to listen and rate the show on iTunes or Spotify to draw more listeners and help book lovers everywhere find these special interviews. Don't miss my next episode with Caitlin Barish, whose debut novel, A Novel Obsession, will steal your precious sleeping hours. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.